Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. It is good to be back from vacation. It's always good to go, but it's always good to come home, too. It's been two weeks since we've been together, so good to, thanks for coming back. So that that means you all had a vacation, (laughs) a vacation for me. Well, it's good to be together. We're going to continue John chapter 18, part two of John chapter 18. As we're moving into the passion narrative as John gives it to us from his account of the gospel, A little bit different from the others, and that's okay. He's got a different purpose in his writing. Always remember as we read through John's gospel, he's reflecting from decades later. He knows what his audience is familiar with, what his readers, the Christian church is familiar with, and he doesn't need to repeat things that they're already familiar with that don't necessarily speak to his purpose. perspective and what he's trying to teach. John writes a gospel not to be historical, but to be theological. And he wants to give us some inner insight, if you will, into symbols and meanings and things and why they happen and the way they happen. And we see that even in the Passion narrative, which we'll see some today, actually. So it's we're beginning a very fascinating uh, journey here in Verse 12 is where we'll begin today. I don't know what we'll get through, but I'm I'm thinking we might get through, uh, we might get to chapter, verse 24, but I I don't know if we'll get that far or not. That would be 12 verses. So let's just start. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read that. That's kind of an impactful section after we pray. Good, Good reminder. I want to go ahead and read that whole part, okay? 12 through 24, if you're reading a Bible that has sections, it will break it into sections, but I'm going to include all of those as one section because it's kind of the the pericope, if you will, it's the big story of this trial of Jesus, the first half of it anyway. Um, So if you have a prayer card, let's pull it out. Let's ask the Lord's guidance and his uh, enlightenment before we read and study scripture. Let's pray. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Let us hear the word of the Lord this morning. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews seized Jesus and bound him. And first they led him to Annas, 
for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had given counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. As this disciple was known to the high priest, he entered the court of the high priest along with Jesus. While Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the maid who kept the door and brought Peter in. The maid who kept the door said to Peter, Are you not also one of this man's disciples? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I have said nothing secretly. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Let's stop there. That's verse 24. Uh, right away, we notice something uniquely different about this account from the other three Gospels. Anybody, just right off the very bat from the first verses we read, does anybody hear something different or see something different if you've kind of looked and compared the four Gospels recently? Just give you a chance to show off your astute biblical knowledge if you, before I tell you what it is. The one thing I noticed, I, maybe you did any others too, I just didn't notice that is that there was another disciple with him. And I guess I didn't catch that in some other passages. Okay. Okay. Anything else? They're starting to manhandle him. They're starting to manhandle him, yeah. Treating him roughly. Where do they go first? When they leave the garden, when they arrest him, which is where we left off two weeks ago, where do they go? To which high priest? Caiaphas. Who's the high priest? Caiaphas. Caiaphas. This is interesting. They led him first, it says, to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. What do we know of Annas? The other Gospels do not mention that they go to Annas. The other three Gospels just mention that he's taken to Caiaphas, and that Caiaphas is where this first trial, if you can call it that, is held. wonder why John wants us to know that they went to Annas first. Let's give you, let me give you a little background in my studies, what I've learned about this situation, because I've dug into it a little bit. What do we know about the history of the office of the high priest of Israel? Let's think about what we know. First of all, we know that it was, uh, you know, a, from the beginning of the Mosaic tradition. This is part of the law. This is part of the, re, the religion, if you will, that God set up through Moses for the people. There would be a high priest. And that high priest, the first one, of course, was Moses' brother, Aaron, right? And the appointment of high priest was is not a popular office, not one to be elected. 
It was through hereditary. It was through family lineage. Okay. Now, there were lots of priests in the Israel uh, tradition, in the Jewish faith, lots of priests who served. You know, the temple ritual had a lot of work to be done, a lot of sacrifices. It wasn't just Passover where there was the lambs. I mean, there was sacrifices all year long. You know, grain offerings and drink offerings and, 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 and birds and animals and all kinds of things. Prayers. And so the priestly work was done by who? There was kind of a lineage of priests. Do we remember who that was in the Old Testament? The Levites. Yes, correct. The Levites are the family that descends from Levi. And so this idea of being a priest in Israel is one of family heritage and lineage. But we find when the Israelites, especially the tribe of Judah, the last ones to be taken captive. Remember, Israel was broken into two kingdoms. Both were taken captive at different times. The northern tribes were called uh, Israel. The southern tribes were called Judah. The Israelites were taken, the northern kingdom, by the Assyrians, 700s before B.C., somewhere. I always forget the exact years. Uh, And then... Within a couple hundred years later, finally Judah falls to the Babylonians. They carry them away. They tear down. That's the one where they tear down the temple and uh, carry them away to captivity. And we know that lasts about 70 years. And we hear some of this story in the prophetic books. And we know that the religion is lost. Okay, there's no more temple. There's no more sacrifice. Okay, so when they come back, then we know that after 70 years, we know that wonderful story from Daniel that, that uh, during that time, uh, the king, Darius, uh, I think it was Darius, was the one that finally said, okay, you can go back and start rebuilding the temple. You can go back. And, and so he lets them go back, and they start rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. That story's in Nehemiah and Ezra. And, and eventually, as they resettle the land, they rebuild the temple. It takes them years and years and years and years to rebuild the temple. Never had quite the glory that Solomon's temple had, but it was still a glorious edifice, and it was. they tried to build it exactly like the other one as best they could. But then the people were kind of always from then on, always conquered. Okay, Even though the Medo-Persian king, Darius, allowed them to go back, uh, a portion of them to go back and do this, they were never a self-governing people again, except for a very brief window. Okay, because long after the Medo-Persians came, the who? Who conquered the Medo-Persian Empire? First there was the Syrians, and there was the Medo-Persians, the Persians, the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks. The Greeks ruled the world, remember? But the Greek Empire eventually fell. And who conquered the Greeks? The Romans. But in between the Romans and the Greeks, there was this very short rebellion in the land of Israel and the people of Israel. And it was called the Maccabean Revolt. You've heard me mention it before. The book of Maccabees that is part of that Septuagint canon of the Old Testament. The original Greek canon. It's not in most of your your Protestant Masoretic Bibles unless you have a Bible that has included them under the title of Apocrypha. Those are historical books that really you should read. They tell us the history of God's people between 
these great Greek and Roman empires and before those couple of centuries before Jesus, you know, that intertestamental period. And what we know, they're, they're, after the, the Maccabean revolt, they established their own kind of dynasty, if you will, and it's called the Hasmonean dynasty. Okay, so they have these kings, these Hasmo, the Hasmonean. They're no longer the kings in the line of David. That was cut off, okay, after the uh, Babylonian captivity. Until, of course, Christ who comes to reign as the seed in the throne of David. But these Hasmonean kings, they have their time. And there's a little bit of, uh, of uh, freedom for Israel, if you will. But it seems that from history, what I've been able to piece together is that they didn't have the lineage of who the high priest was. They, they couldn't just, after hundreds of years, go back to that same old hereditary family line of high priests. And so they began to elect high priests. And so fast forward to the time of the Romans, because we don't have time to go through all the history of the Hasmonean dynasty. But if we fast forward to the time of the Romans, you know that the Romans were unique in the way they conquered the world. And they, their subjects, their foreign subjects, they would allow them certain freedoms to continue their religion and their cultural practices. As long as they didn't interfere with Rome's rule. So therefore, they had these governors they'd send places, which we'll speak about Pilate in a little while, and maybe in next week or the next week. So they, Pilate, we know, is a Roman governor of the province. Okay, it's a ruled land of, of uh, Israel, which they begin to call Palestine. That's where the whole word Palestine comes from. Palestina, as, as the Latins, the Romans called it. Okay, that's not the native name of the land of Israel, as some people think it is today. So, in Palestine, in Israel, the Roman governors began to control the people. One of the ways they could control their religion, allow them to still have their religion, but still control them, was to control their high priest. Because the high priest, I mean, if you're an Israelite, if you're Jew, the high priest's office is it's like the king. They have no have no king anymore, but it's the highest ranking official. Religiously, it always was, you know. But the king was the king. Uh, they had high priests before they had kings. We might compare it if we could think in terms of it's a little hard for us to relate to uh, as Protestants. But if you were an ancient Christian that was maybe Catholic or Orthodox in the ancient world. There were popes and patriarchs. Popes and patriarchs. These were the highest-ranking authorities. There was an appeal to be made. They had to be made to them. Okay, So that's where we're at. Now we have high priests that have for, for decades, even actually centuries at this point, being just appointed by Romans. Okay, And why did they appoint them? Who would they pick? The best theologically-minded people? the best scriptural-minded, the best righteous people. No, they wouldn't appoint them. They want to control them. So who might they appoint? Who might be a good candidate to be high priest? Those that are politically-minded. That's right. Yeah, it's all about politics. Those that will play the game with the Romans. And why would they play the game with the Romans? Might get wealthy, you see. 
So what we know from history is that the, the, the high priest would offer bribes. The governors would take bribes. And why would you appoint? And then once they're in office, of course, then they can work the system and get all kinds of monies working with the Romans and against the people. Uh, so the high priests got quite wealthy. And why, if you're a Roman, why are you going to appoint a high priest for life? When you could appoint one every year, get a whole new set of bribes, get a regular annual income, okay? The seat was for sale to the highest bidder, if you will. So think this through with me. Annas, the scripture tells us through John, Annas was a high priest. Even though scripture is very clear to tell us that the high priest at this time of the arrest is Caiaphas. Caiaphas is, scripture even tells us, John tells us, who to Annas? He's a son-in-law. Now, but, but, but good point about the son. Annas has had five sons all be high priests. Annas is apparently the head of a kind of a, if I can use the word, dynastic family of high priests. It's a person with a lot of power, a lot of politics, a lot of connections, and he's managed to have five of his sons. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us about those five, but historical records do, that he's had five of his sons become high priest. And now it's time for his son-in-law. It's very important. John, John is also connecting for us the dots that Luke tells us in his gospel that the, that the time of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus on earth, really took place during the reigns of, of the high priest Annas and Caiaphas. So he's connecting both of these dots. The others did not mention Annaphas. And that's okay, because most of the trial, as we're going to see, most of the events take place with Caiaphas. But why was it important that he tell us that they went to Annas? Why was this important? Because it shows us the political power that was held by these high priests. It shows us the level of corruption that they had. Now, Caiaphas must have been a very, a very unique individual because we actually know from history that those yearly appointments or elections or bribery positioned offices, whatever you call that, well, there's a name for that. When you, what, what is that called You know, in politics where you put a guy in office because of money and that? There's, I can't think of the word right now. Uh, hopefully it doesn't happen too much in America, <laughs> but I know it does. But there, there's a word for it that escapes me. But Caiaphas ends up being, history tells us he's, he's the high priest for eight, years. Pretty unique individual. He managed to solidify that bribery, maybe outbid everybody else for the next 18 years. I don't know. doesn't teach us that. But uh, Pilate, for instance, he outlasts Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor for 12 years, history tells us, uh, and, and is fairly new during the time. We know when Pilate began and ended, so during the reign of Jesus, during the ministry of Jesus, Pilate was fairly new in the land. Um, much of what we know about Pilate's life is extra-biblical also. It's from historical records. Uh, but that's going to that's gonna all figure in, okay? Um, Annas is a man of great power. Probably when the, when, the, when the 
authorities of Israel began to get really frustrated with Jesus early on. Probably was when Annas was high priest. When they first started saying things like, get that guy. We don't like that guy. That guy's, you know, could you just arrest that guy or whatever? You know, there, there was this times. Yes, jump Nepotism. in. Nepotism. That's it. Nepotism, that's it. Nepotism's the word driving me nuts everything. Um, but uh, in this context, Annas is probably the early reign of, of Jesus. So Annas is very familiar with Jesus, very familiar. Can you imagine the conversations between Annas and Caiaphas when he's transitioning power and, and you know, Annas is still kind of holding some of the strings over Caiaphas, teaching him the ropes. Hey, you got to watch out for Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth guy is a troublemaker. But, you know, the people are starting to follow this guy. We've got to watch out. Now, I, those are my words. Those are my thoughts. I'm just trying to imagine what it must have been like here in this transition of high priestly power with this one who was considered such a uh, troublemaker as Jesus by the authorities. So we, with the first section here, we, we have it. John tells us in verse 14 um, that it was Caiaphas, after he's introduced by the fact that he's Annas' son-in-law, that it was Caiaphas who gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. That's pretty prophetic when you think about it. It's pretty prophetic. The, you know, the Holy Spirit actually uh, used Caiaphas' words there because it is. It, w- it was expedient for one to die for the people for the exact opposite reason. Caiaphas thought, well, we can just have one die you know, uh, rather than all of us get killed by the Romans when what the Holy Spirit was fulfilling was one would die for the sins of the whole world. But Annas, think about this. I think I think one of the reasons they brought him to Annas first was because this was the trophy. Hey, we caught him. We finally got him. Let's go show him to Annas. Let's get Annas to tell us what to do because Annas is probably pulling a lot of the strings still as he has to get five sons in, in office. So let's pick up the story as we go on here. Let's continue, continue looking at it as, as what happens when, when they go to Caiaphas' house. Now, there is a place in Israel that is called Caiaphas' house. If you go to the Holy Land or if you've been there, you know it because it was more than likely part of your pilgrimage. That's not the house. It's a church built over the location like it is in most places in, in the Holy Land. There are churches built on the places of remembrance. Okay, And... It's a fascinating stop along the way. They've designed outside the outside of the house. They've designed a, a <coughs> courtyard that you know where you could kind of get the visual that there was a courtyard. Uh, you can look down over the valley, the Kidron Valley. There are literally the what they call the holy steps. They won't let you go down them anymore. The the the, the rock steps that go down through into the Kidron Valley. That, that would have slipped outside when Jesus and his disciples left the upper room, slipped outside the walls of the city and went down in over to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. So this is all kind of in that area. And in, uh, in Caiaphas' house, in where it was stood, there is a pit. And there's a pit because the high priest would have over those that were being brought to him. And... We're going to read a little bit in, in the Psalms about the pit in just a little bit. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I'm, I'm going to uh, share some of that thought with you. So now we're at Caiaphas' house. 
Simon Peter, it says, followed Jesus. Now, much is made about Peter's denials. Okay, much is made about Peter's denials. And that, for good reason, there's a lot we can learn from that. But I don't think enough is made over Peter's, the bravery of him and John. I mean, they went, at least they followed. Everyone else scattered. But we have the record that John and Peter followed. Now, John introduces himself here. As you saw there, uh, uh, Dennis had said, another disciple. So Simon Peter, Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, we know that that disciple is actually John. When you look at the whole writing of John, he introduces himself in the third person. He always introduces himself in the narrative as the third person in the story. Sometimes as the disciple whom Jesus loved or another disciple. Now, we know that as we follow this story, the narration of, of, of what it says. So let's, let's follow it a little closer here. As this disciple, now that means the extra disciple who we know now is John. As this disciple was known to the high priest, he entered the court of the high priest along with Jesus. Now, that is a fascinating phrase. Jesus has 12 disciples, 11 at this point, because one's already betrayed him. They're a, a, a ragtag band of men. None of them are famous, okay? None of them hold positions of high authority, the best of our knowledge. Three of them, at least, were fishermen, Peter, James, and John, this very one that we're talking about, John, uh, from up around the sons of Zebedee, from up around Galilee. How is it that John is known to the high priest? That's fascinating, isn't it? Have you ever stopped and think of that when you read? We just read through this sometimes without stopping to think of the full impact. What is John trying to communicate about himself and to us in this story? It says, and this disciple was known to the high priest. And so he entered the court of the high priest along with Jesus. So get the picture. They're pull, they've got Jesus bound in chains or ropes or whatever, and they're pulling him along. And, and right behind him, pretty close, is John. And, and John's coming in, it says, allowed to go into the court, the courtyard, if you will. And then it says, while Peter stood outside the door, okay, the door or the gate, if you will, of the courtyard area, they were always gated. Um, and, and so the other disciple, again, we'll call him John, who's known to the high priest, point made twice there, known to the high priest, again, went out and spoke to the maid who kept the door and brought Peter in. John knows these people at least well enough that A, they let him in, B, he could talk to the lady guarding the door and get Peter in. Fascinating details, absolutely fascinating details that most biblical commentators don't stop to talk about. How could this... Fishermen from Galilee have such influence. You ever stop and think about that? John, John's a unique disciple anyway. I mean, you read his books. You read the gospel and his letters, his three letters in the book of Revelation. He's the one that, by God's privilege, was allowed to live into old age. He's, he, he is the one that seems to be the, well, it's not fair of me to say this, but it just seems from the evidence we have the deepest theological thinker. You know, he just, he's a unique one, he, he, unique personality. Uh, go ahead. Could have they been followers? 
followers of Jesus. Who? This the maid? The maid, yeah. Interesting point. Could they have been a secret follower? It's an interesting point. Possible. Okay, I'll let you in. Okay, we'll let him in too. Peter, come along. You know, there's a fascinating... I had to dig. In some of my studies, I had to dig quite deep. But I was found this point that I find absolutely fascinating. Two thoughts. Really, I found two thoughts. One is that being a fisherman and having a fishing business, maybe they delivered fish to the high priest a lot. That's what one biblical scholar has said. Maybe they delivered fish a lot, and the maid just knew him as the guy that delivered the fish. That would make more sense to me if they were closer to Galilee, because the fishing business was in Galilee, not in the hills of Judea where Jerusalem is. It's a little, I, I think it's a stretch to say that John hauled fish all the way to, no, not that the people in Jerusalem didn't eat fish, sure they did. And they, must have, they had a way of salting it and keeping it and everything, but, but that they would regularly travel from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem enough to sell fish door to door. It's a stretch to me. Might have happened though, could have been. Kind of like, were, they, were there secret followers here? Maybe this lady at the door was a secret follower, I don't know. We'll see a little bit more from them in, in, in just a few minutes. But here's the one that really fascinates me. In Christian history, there is a very important writer by the name of Eusebius. Eusebius is a historian who writes of Christian history. You can buy his books still. <laughs> 2,000 years later, you can buy his books. Uh, you can look up his writings online if you don't want to buy the books. But one of the things that he, that he details is that when John died, now we're at the end of the first century. John's the one that lived into old age, you know, both wrote the book of Revelation, was exiled to Patmos, and, and, and lived up in the area around Ephesus in Asia Minor, okay, in the, what we call Turkey. That's where he spent. Well, this is the one that Jesus gave his mother to at the cross, remember? Son, behold your mother. And it says right there, well, we haven't got to that point yet, but in the Gospel of John, it's going to tell us Mary went to live with him, okay, the rest of her life. And at that, so this is the hymn. The tradition from history, from what we know from Eusebius, is that when John was buried, when he died, now actually tradition tells us, the historical tradition tells us that John was ordered to be killed, but that he was boiled in oil and lived through it. Don't know if that's true or not. But that he died of old age is the recorded history. And that in his old age, he was buried with this unique comment by Eusebius, that he was buried wearing the sacrament, sacerdotal breastplate. Sacerdotal breastplate. The what in the world is that? Do you know what that is? Is that a breastplate that some of the, the priests like um, Andrew or uh, Aaron and yeah. Moses that they, they made special or ornate yes. and everything and had underneath their robes? Very good, Judy, it is. The breastplate, if you look back into the Old Testament, the priests were, des they were designed to wear certain garments, priestly garments, okay? 
This is why Christian ministers today even wear certain things in leading worship, like robes, stoles, uh, clerical collars, different functional duties. Ministers of God have, throughout the time, had selected garments that were designed to speak to their office. Okay? And the priest of the Old Testament, he would not have worn this as a Christian priest. Okay? Very clearly from historical tradition, we know that Christians, they weren't called priests yet in, at the writing of Scripture. They were called presbyters. The word in the Scripture that describes the role in the office that, that these men were ordained to was presbyter. Now, specifically, people like the 12 apostles, uh, the word episkopos, which means bishop. Overseers, But in the very beginning, in the earliest days, bishops and presbyters were kind of the same role. Eventually evolved separately as we needed more presbyters and bishops to oversee bigger areas. Okay, So we think of those in the words like today. Pastors, presbyters, elders. Bishops, superintendent. Okay, We have district superintendents, right? It's the same thing as saying we have a district bishop. Okay, Presbyters. Elders, that's the word, presbyteros in Greek. That's what they're called. They wore, they did wear special garments, and we begin seeing that throughout history, but they weren't really called priests. There would not have been a reason for John to wear the sacerdotal. Sacerdotal is a Latin word meaning from the sacramentum or the sacraments of the religion. And the sacerdotal breastplate was the indication of a Levite. It is perhaps the case that John was a priest of a priestly family. Was we don't we don't know that from related, scripture. Related to the priest? If he was a priest, a Levite, okay, the functioning priest, most likely his father was a priest because it was a fatherly business. And the sons, you know, as we've learned. They're not a high priest, not one of these elected high priests, okay, but a Levitical priest. Okay. What was the responsibility? Could John have been a Levitical priest? Sure he could have. Could have been a fisherman, too, because as a priest, his responsibility, scripturally, we know his responsibility was what? Two weeks out of the year. Kind of like the National Guard, <laughs> except they're every weekend a month, one weekend a month. Two, two, that was uh, being facetious. They're nothing like the National Guard. I mean, the point was it was a temporary job. Okay. Two weeks out of the year. We learned that from the story of Zechariah and, and others who were, you know, they went to do their duty at the temple two weeks out of the year. But the rest of the year, they had their lives. He could have been a fisherman and with his father in the business and still had time to go do his two-week duty. We don't know for sure. But isn't that a fascinating piece of history? And a fascinating point that John himself writing this, no one else about him, he writes this other disciple, he's too humble to call himself by name and say, I did it. This other disciple, who's known to the high priest, as a part, if he was a priest, he would have very, very likely been known from his two weeks that he served every year. Very likely been known. Very likely been let in. Yes? Wasn't the breastplate, wasn't, uh, didn't God tell them how they were supposed to make it and what colors to put on it? Yeah, I think there were 12 stones that described it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was just. The Lord, when they, he had them get together the stuff to make the tent, the tent mm -hmm. for the, the temple. Yes. Or 
For the tabernacle. tabernacle yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was very and much described made, by God. And he told them how to make the, all of the clothes. Right. When, when they're in the tabernacle. He was very specific about the way they should dress and everything they should do. God, let's get it. Let's get this tr- through. Our God was a very liturgical-minded God. I would even say is a very liturgically-minded God. As evangelicals, we've lost the the concept in the modern world. We've lost the concept of liturgy. It's kind of sad to me that we've lost that concept. What what does the word liturgy mean? Does anybody know? It's from the Greek, liturgia. What does it mean? It means the work of the people. That's literally what it means. That when you go to worship, God designed worship of himself. No question. You can't read the Old Testament without seeing it. God designed worship for himself in a liturgical fashion for people to do specific things at specific times in specific ways with specific prayers for a edifying reason because it was training for their spirits. We call that spiritual formation. God was not, and we have no biblical evidence to show that God was ever or is ever a just a free, willing, free-spirited God. Yeah, you can worship me any way you want. <laughs> not at all. Quite the opposite. He even, ha- even designed his own house of worship as a very liturgically-minded setting with specific rules for altars and specific ornaments and specific lights and specific beauty, specific iconography, if you will, painting type of woven tapestry that, that revealed his glory as well as when you went to the temple or to the tabernacle, even as far back as Moses. Whenever you went to the official worship of God, you went and you were encountering the majesty and the beauty of God. And we wonder, we look back in history, why did the Christians, when they finally had the authority to start building structures, you know, after the Roman Empire became a Christian, you know, and we know in that third century and, and on forward, you know, they built amazing structures of Christian houses of worship. So we, we, we're, we're, a, we're a little foreign to that because it's just, we haven't lived through that and we came out of the evangelical movement that, that, that very rightly so was centered on the spread of the word of God and, and the message of the gospel and salvation, but we did it at the expense, unfortunately, of a, some of the beauty of the liturgy. And it's interesting to me that biblical study always leads people to a more liturgical method of worship. And so does history until the very modern era. And you don't have to go too far back. You don't have to go too far back in in recent history to find when we kind of left those pathways. And it just kind of happened. But I want you to bear in mind right here that John very well may have been a part of that liturgical life of the priest and the priesthood. Don't know for sure, not teaching it for sure, just saying it makes sense of the scripture. But in either case, he has the ability to get Peter inside. Now, think about it this way. If Peter, notice what what happens to Peter 
What, what does the girl at the door notice about Peter? Right away. I mean, it's just it's right away as he's walking in. Hey, weren't you one of them? <laughs> aren't you one of his followers? I mean, notice it says, the maid who kept the door said to Peter, are you not one of these man's disciples? It's right after they're going through the door. He says, I am not. Now, in the Greek, the, the way that's phrased, the question is phrased in a, in a way as to elicit a negative response. Okay. Are you not... You know, uh, well, either are or you aren't. And so Peter's not going to admit he is. And so he says, I'm not. It's, it's a, the exact reversal of what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am. Ego a mi. Oak a mi. I am not. Jesus says, I am God. Peter says, I'm not. I'm not a follower of God. It, it, it's just an, it's instinctive to him. It just comes out. Fear of it in his human fear, you know. Uh, and so we know that this has been prophesied. We've studied that earlier. Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times before the cock even crows. You think you're going to follow me to death, but you're not. Um, and, and then it says, now the servants, this is verse 18. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. Now this time of year, it's not particularly cold, but I think there may be some Symbolism there between the cold, dark night and what is happening here, the darkest hour for humanity when the Savior of the world is condemned to die. But it was that night, cold, and they were standing and warming themselves, and Peter is also standing with them. And as he's standing with them, we hear this story Verse 19 carries on that the high priest then is questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. Um, now, if we're following this here, uh, we're following it differently than if we were reading the others, okay? We haven't heard the other Gospels, I mean. The story just picks up at Caiaphas' house. John is not interested in the chronology of the events. He's interested in the meaning of the events. So it appears to us as we're reading this, uh, he told us he was Caiaphas' father-in-law, but he doesn't tell us as we're reading this that they're right in Caiaphas' house. We know from the other accounts and from the history that they've already transitioned to Caiaphas' house. John just doesn't go through that point. I'm just bringing these things out so that as you read the four Gospels, one of the biggest things that people like to shoot holes in the gospel, oh, this doesn't agree with that. They miss, they're, they're not supposed to agree in all of their facets. And you got to look at the structure of each of them and what purpose they're written for and who were they written by and why were they written. Okay, It's not to say that they didn't go to Caiaphas' house. John just doesn't mention that. Okay, So as they're there, um, Peter's outside by the fire. In this gathering, this, this, if you can call it that, we, we know that by now there's some other leaders, this, a partial group of the Sanhedrin, not a full group. Okay? The, others tell us, the other Gospels tell us that Jesus has tried before the Sanhedrin. We know this is happening in the middle of the night. Okay? Probably not the, the whole Sanhedrin, the 72, probably not all there. This is an illegal trial. Okay? They're doing their 
type of vigilante justice here by night. But there are definitely Sanhedrin, and the members of the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin are there. And, and it is in this, uh, in this setting that the high priest is questioning Jesus, and that would be Caiaphas now. Okay? Caiaphas is questioning Jesus. And it says, um, lost my page here, let me turn back. He's questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. John doesn't record us the actual questions. He's not concerned with that. He's concerned with the fact that he's being questioned. And Jesus' response is what John is concerned with. So in verse 20, John gives us Jesus' answer. John gives us Jesus' answer. Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues. I've always taught in the temples. I've always taught where the Jews gathered. I've been in the open. Jesus said, I haven't taught in secret. What's he saying? My Christian followers, my followers, they are not a secret sect. This is not some secret knowledge. I've been offering my ministry to the world. Uh, you know, I've been out there along the byways and highways and city streets of all of Israel, is what he's saying. Nothing's been kept in secret. And for this, Jesus ends, he said, why do you ask me? In other words, isn't it obvious that I, what I've done with my teachings? And, and so what happens? Was Jesus particularly disrespectful in his answer? I don't think he was disrespectful. Like he just stated the facts. Hey, I've been out there open and everything, you know. And, and so one of these guys walks up and slaps him. <laughs> Why do you ask me? Have, ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I've said. He's saying, my public testimony is out there. You can go ask the people what I've said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is this how you talk to the high priest? They're, what are they doing here? They want Jesus to entrap himself. They are looking for a reason to kill Jesus because they don't have one. They're looking, and as this trial develops, we're, it's going to take us a few weeks to get through this whole thing, they're going to find one. They're going to make one up, if you will. But they don't have it yet. And Caiaphas doesn't have it yet. He's, they're probably frustrated. Is that how you answer the high priest? J John remembers that specific incident. And then look at Jesus' response. How does Jesus respond to being slapped in the face? What does he say? If I've spoken wrongly, tell me what I've said wrong. There's nothing disrespectful in that. Jesus is just telling the truth. He's not being particularly disrespectful at all. But he's saying, my ministry has been obvious. You can ask anyone. And if I've spoken wrongly, then why do you treat me this way? Because, you know, the truth is, if I'm spoken, I've spoken rightly. And you can, you can get the facts if you care to go get them. That's what Jesus is saying. You can get the facts if you care to go get them. There's lots of testifying witnesses to my ministry. But they don't want that. They want their agenda. And so it says that Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, at the end of this. Probably this was happening at Caiaphas' house. John may not have cared to relate it in the right passage. Or he had the questions at both. Because we know he's interrogated at Caiaphas too. But 
probably the, the interrogation at Annas' house was short. Okay. And then he gets bound to Caiaphas. But when you look to the next section, um, we're not going to have time to get into it. But in, in verse 28, it tells us, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the praetorium. So John skips the whole trial at Caiaphas' house. He doesn't tell us that that's where they're at. And that's okay. Whether it's Annas' house or Caiaphas' house, it's okay. Because they represent the priesthood, the high priesthood. They represent the structure. Okay, It's not about mistakes. I really believe it's about uh, analogy. John is trying to show that the highest authority is Annas. Annas is the man of power, not Caiaphas. And Jesus answered to Annas in a way that was respectful, but yet truthful, and did not cower. He did not cower. He did not break. He did not give them any reason to convict him. And remember what we talked about last week. Jesus was in charge in the garden, wasn't he? That's the way John told the story. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's it's more as if Jesus is the victim. And he is. He's a victim, definitely. But John wants us to know the other side. Jesus isn't just a victim. Jesus is in control. He willingly surrenders to arrest. He willingly came forward last time we were together, and you hear that, you know, how he willingly surrendered himself. Who are you looking for? He willingly stands here and answers these questions. He willingly allows himself to go to the cross. Rhonda, you brought my Bible back there. Would you bring that to me? Because I I wanted to read something in closing. I left uh, that particular Bible. I wanted to get that. Or I can get it it from you here. In my hurry, I walked in without it. Um, I, I want. To, I related to you in the beginning. There was this. Um, you run back to the Psalms. If you you have a Bible, you can turn back to the Psalms with me, and, and turn to, in your Bible. Turn to Psalm eighty-eight. Psalm eighty-eight. I want to try and give you in our closing moments today some thoughts about what might have happened in this night of of the trial. Because we know that they don't get to Pilate's house until early morning. The the praetorium, it's not Pilate's house. It's the seat of government in Jerusalem where the Roman governor would be when he was in Jerusalem. Pilate actually lived in Caesarea. Okay, That's where there was King Herod, the Hasmonean dynasty king, puppet king to the Romans. He had built a beautiful temple and a beautiful city and a beautiful harbor and everything. You can tour the ruins there in Caesarea by the sea uh, for the Roman governor, uh, for the Caesar, if you will. Caesarea means for the Caesar. Uh, The Jewish puppet king Herod, the evil king, you know, that tried to have Jesus killed when he was a baby. That guy built a Roman. That's where Pilate lived up there. That's where the Roman governors all lived. But it's Passover time. Their job is to keep the peace. Make sure nothing bad. He's going to be in, you know, the city swelled. I mean, there was hundreds of thousands of people in the city that normally don't live there. He's going to be there for them. So to make sure everything goes well. So during this time of the trial at Caiaphas' house, now other gospel writers give us more details of mocking and slapping and and doing things uh, by the Jews as well as by the Romans, as we're going to see. Uh, So the Jews do beat him, but... Part of what probably happened, by looking back into the Psalms, we see this filled in, is at this house, I mentioned to you this house of Caiaphas, where this 
church is built now in, in Israel. And it's called St. Peter's Galakentu. Galakentu is a French word for the place of the cock, the galakin, um, the cock crowing, the rooster. And in this house, there is below, I didn't bring my pictures, I've showed them before, I think, um, and those of you been there, there, there is this what's called the sacred pit. Some of you remember it? That have been there, the sacred pit. There's this hole where they would probably have hung the prisoners. The kind of tradition was that they hung. What are they going to do with him? They got several out. These guys, I can guarantee you, these guys didn't miss their whole night's sleep because of this. They, they, they got what they could get out of him. They couldn't get any more, and they hung him in the pit till morning. They weren't going to go wake Pilate up at three in the morning. Okay, that's for sure. So uh, they take him and hang him in this pit. Let's, let's look at Psalm 88. We know that the Psalms are the prayer book of God. Whenever you read the Psalms, always look for the person of Jesus Christ. In every Psalm you read, always look for the person of Jesus Christ. He is there. Okay, They reflect prophetically the life of the Savior and the worship of the King. Okay, Sometimes it may be referring to the King of Israel, David, but it means also the king, the real king of Israel, which is Messiah, Christ. But in this case, listen to these words about, okay, Psalm 88. Here we go. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my supplication, O Lord, for my soul is filled with sorrows. And my soul draws near to Hades. Yours might say Sheol. I'm reading from the Greek translation. I am counted among those who go down into the pit. There's that sacred pit we're talking about. Hades, the place of death. Soul near great sorrows. You feel this. He says, I'm like a helpless man, free among the dead. Like slain men thrown down in sleeping in a grave whom you remember no more. But they are removed from your hand. They laid me in the lowest pit, in dark places and in the shadow of death. Your wrath rested upon me. You brought all your billows over me. You removed my acquaintances far from me. They made me an abomination among themselves. I was betrayed and did not go forth. My eyes weakened from poverty. Oh, Lord, I cry to you the whole day long. I spread out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Or will physicians raise them up and acknowledge you? Shall anyone in the grave describe your mercy and your truth in destruction? Shall your wonders be known in darkness and your righteousness in a forgotten land? But I cry to you, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer shall come near to you. Why, O oh Lord, do you reject my soul and turn away your face from me? I am poor and in troubles from my youth, but have been exalted. I was humbled and brought into despair. Your fierce anger passed over me. Your terrors greatly troubled me. They encompassed me like water all day long. They surrounded me at once. You removed far from me neighbor and friend and my acquaintance because of my misery. That is a very woeful psalm, isn't it? 
That is written by someone and spoken in the words of someone who is feeling the pains of death near death, who's feeling isolated, depressed, separated from God, alone, abandoned, unfairly. This is, that's what you hear in these words. This is, this is prophetically understood to be the words of our Lord hanging in the pit. Pit of despair. Sacred pit. For a few hours until he, they were, got as far as they could with Caiaphas and they're waiting to take him to Pilate. So it fills in a little bit. You love how scripture just, you got to see the whole big sweeping scope. There are other Psalms that speak to that nature of Christ's words in, in suffering as well. Uh, even some that speak of, we'll get to those when he's on the cross as well. Uh, but I wanted you to have that connection there. What's happening this whole night long um, of this trial? We're at the top of the hour, so I should quit. Uh, any questions at this point? Any thoughts? Things that not clear about before we go on? Next week we'll pick up the story with the trial with Pilate. Anything? Observations? Not yet? Okay. Well, let's pray as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of your word. Thank you for opening our eyes. Help us to see the light of truth in the pages of your Holy Scripture. Help us to see the agony of Jesus in his trials, in his sufferings, in his passion for our sake as we go through these weeks of studying this passion narrative. So help us now to uh, carry these thoughts with us until we meet again. We give you all the praise through Christ our Lord, the one who did suffer and die for us, who is your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.